Hello and welcome to episode 327 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is 11th of June 2020. Um, I'm Alex Wiltshire and I'm, uh, I'm joined tonight to talk about PC games by Graham Smith. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. Hey, so, uh, so what's the news? Not E3 has started, also known as the eternal E3, the E3 that will never end. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, Wednesday was basically the official kickoff with IGN's Summer of Gaming event. They, they're doing daily streams at the moment, and so that was on Wednesday. Then to, earlier today, there was the Escapists indie game stream, which I don't know the name of. And then later on, in fact, while we're recording this, there's going to be the Sony event, um, which should be the big one where they hopefully convince people that you should buy a PlayStation 5 because there's going to be games for it and not just teraflops. Yeah, <laughs> SSD transfer rates. <laughs> <laughs> I love SSD transfer rates. I'm a PC games journalist, goddammit. We do love being SSD transfer rates. That's what we're all about. <laughs> so you're saying it's something like a vindication of um, everything that a PC gaming has held dear. but And yet... I can sense that we're kind of laughing at um, this one uh, barometer of power that's coming on. <laughs> I mean, I don't really understand what teraflops are. I didn't listen. <laughs> I, I confess I didn't listen to the weird GDC, um, present, not JDC presentation they did where they had fake <laughs> silhouettes of people at the bottom of the screen listening to the man talk. I think oh, a flop is a floating point operation, which is like the the common kind of maths you need to do to do like 3d huh. stuff and so, so how, how many is... how much of that maths did do you do tom in your games <laughs> i only do a mega flop <laughs> <laughs> so you could so you're saying that the ps5 is going to be able to run several of your games all at the same time oh you know what um teraflops i've just realized is not a plural the s actually stands for um seconds so it's floating point operations per second Okay, huh. so it's teraflop Yeah, so you, I don't think you can have a teraflop. <laughs> Even if there's only one of them, it's one teraflops. <laughs> That's really upsetting. That makes me like them more. <laughs> what I can't tell you is yeah, how much I'm... a tera is, even though I know that in the megabyte context, but like you don't often think about actual bytes, so it's... it's uh, well, it's a thousand gigabytes. A gigabyte is a thousand megabytes, and a megabyte is a million bytes. So it's a thousand, thousand million floating operation, floating point operations per second. Yeah, that's pretty good. All I know is the rocks look pretty good in that Unreal Engine <laughs> Five demo they did a few weeks ago. Um, and so I'm sure Horizon One Dawn or whatever it's called will. That's <laughs> right. They should fight the robots. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I really hope they call it that. <laughs> um, do you remember I was puzzled when we talked about the tech demo before? Like, why does it have sort of player helping white scuff marks on all the climbable bits if it's just a tech demo? Why did they need it to be, you know, readable to the average player? And apparently it was gonna be it was gonna be playable. Like this isn't although this isn't a game they're making, they were gonna let people play that demo um at some event, and so that's why it had these kind of um those conceits. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I did. I just assumed that that like 
every little gamer detail would help uh, people understand that or see it as being a real thing. Because I think yeah. that's a sort of as often the problem with tech demos that that you're it's definitely part of my brain that discounts a lot of it because I know that it won't be used in any games. It's like when you see, you know, this, you know, like these those classic Sony ones of sort of ducks kind of accurately bobbing around in water. But you know that in a game that's also modeling AI and God knows what else, that that's just impossible for any practical um, you know, application. Mm. But the more kind of scuff marks on walls and and squeezing through narrow gaps, you know, <laughs> The, the better well, that one backfired on them didn't it because everyone assumed it was a loading thing and then they had to sort of <laughs> issue a statement of like no it wasn't loading it already loaded we promise <laughs> we thought your ssd uh, transfer rates were really high <laughs> we thought gamers just really liked the camera zooming in close to the rocks <laughs> which you squeeze through narrow chasms that's what video games are all about the fantasy of being almost trapped but then not <laughs> Oh, we should, I mean, really, I mean, we've kind of planned this very, but like we're delivering a very bad service, really, because um, we should be watching what what, it, what it, that thing is actually going to be doing uh, and then be able to talk about it. But did you, um, you, do you, you saw some of this, the IGN stream, did you, Graham? No, I did not. I read about the IGN stream and then in the intervening period forgot everything that happened at the IGN stream. <laughs> it was like they, they, announced everything that was going to be there in advance and the things that were there were the things that they said were going to be there. (laughs) (laughs) What more can you ask for, really, from from one of these events? There wasn't anything major, is what I remember, but I watched a bunch of the Escapist one today, um, which was like two and a half hours of just wall-to-wall trailers for indie games until indie games start coming out of your ears. Um, and they all start to look the same uh, and it was there was like there was interesting stuff there there was some nice looking stuff there there was also just weird stuff there that you wonder like there was a there was a game that looked a lot like a fear mod like or if you try to recreate fear using unity stock assets like it was grey box rooms with a single enemy character model checkboxes in the menus that let you give them big heads or t-poses and then you just run around the featureless room shooting them with a shotgun uh and that was that was the game and so the, and, and at the same time that was mixed in there with stuff that looks nice so there's a game called game deck which is a terrible hmm. name um, <laughs> d-e-c game deck which is like a cyberpunk detective turn-based rpg thing okay uh which looks I have a lot of skepticism about whether its story and characters are going to be insufferable because it has that it's bordering on edgelord or maybe jumping headfirst into edgelord. I don't know, but um, it looks really nice and I like turn-based RPGs and that sort of stuff. And it was, it was very polished and very slick. Cool. There's um, I think it's quite interesting. Like I find somehow the, the, you know, like a, one of the big uh, expos, you know, the, one of the kind of big uh, Sony or Microsoft um, shows, you know, they have gotten very good at pacing them. You know, so you get these kind of lulls and highs and sort of a sense of expectation that they, they put on the show. Um, and I think that that 
that is what these collections of trailer shows seem to be missing out. Like, it doesn't have you, you know with the IGN one you knew what was coming, so therefore it was just a matter of waiting to see the thing you were looking out for, or you know, I don't know. Like, you, there aren't going to. Whenever you whenever you watch a Sony show, you're always like, what is going to be the thing that we don't know about already? Um, when are they going to show the thing that we know is coming? But like when, you know, they, they they play around with expectations. And it's it's like putting on a show is quite important for the entertainment industry. Who'd have thought? <laughs> That's why Ubisoft's conference was always the best at E3 because they had some sense of, well, this is this whole thing is a performance. You know, from the moment they start with the panda dancing to just dance or whatever, yeah. there is a sense of performance to the whole thing. That the show itself is a form of entertainment, rather than it being none of the game trailers are a form of entertainment, and everything in between is awkward executives chatting. Um, and so, like this escapist thing had a real pacing problem of just being relentless, game after game after game after game after game after game. And then, because it's indie games, they don't have like by and large they don't have a budget to pay someone to make them a really nice trailer and so a lot of the trailers have pacing problems as well <laughs> um which you know you can you can look past but as a as a two and a half hour experience it left a lot to be desired i think it drives me crazy when indie trailers uh they have music over them which is fine but they also mute the game sound i guess so that it doesn't like clash with the with the you know, music they're putting on the trailer, but that just, you've taken away like 40% of the feel of your game. Like I just can't tell whether it's any fun to play because I need to know what things sound like to know how it feels. Yeah. And like, to, to, like one thing I did like was they did put some effort into like getting developers to record little to camera pieces that would either talk about, like describe what the game actually was. Like as one of the things that we're, we've always complained about is that too many game trailers, you get to the end of it and you're like, I don't know, anything that just happened in that game or what I'm actually <laughs> supposed to do when I play it. So they did have a bunch of developers that just in 90 seconds described what their game was, and that was good. But then the flip of that was that it was obviously people just in their homes with whatever webcam they had. And so the audio quality and the video quality and that was going up and down <laughs> every two minutes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't heap too much scorn on it. <laughs> If they had infinite capacity to coordinate this, uh, they could have done it where they pick one game developer to talk about their own game, and then that developer also, it, like, they could get to look through the list of everything else they're featuring and see what they think is most interesting, and then they introduce that game and say, okay, next up we've got um, you know this thing, and here's why I'm excited about it, and then they show the trailer for that, and then it goes to that developer, and they pick what, whatever thing they want to introduce next. That'd be lovely. I can just imagine being the one at the end, kind of having to um, introduce the the fear mod. <laughs> like, oh, oh, why do I have to be second from last? And the fear mod has nobody. <laughs> the, thing, the thing was, like, I completely dragged the fear mod one, um, but it was the only one of fifty three games that I immediately went because it said at the end, "Hey, there's a demo of this on Steam right now," and I've I've downloaded it. I love fear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fear was great. It did have its aesthetic was was very um, it, particularly its like level geometry just had this incredible flatness about it. It was just boxes. It was just like <laughs> there's something. There must be some like magic that FPSs normally do to kind of I don't know soften edges or sort of blend the lighting in or something that Fear didn't do because it just had this feeling of this is a cardboard warehouse that we're in. <laughs> <laughs>
I did like this this game. I can't. I I should try and find the name of it. I'll try and find the name of it so I can actually shout it out as I'm waffling here to, in order to stall for time. But um, it's it even has those kind of warehouse shelves where <laughs> they're designed that you can pick the object off the shelf on either side of it, um, and like cardboard boxes on them, and then it's got the the slide move, the slide kick that fear has, oh, yeah. that just sends people spiraling off into the air. And then the whole rest of the game seems to be shotgunning people so hard that they burst <laughs> um, <laughs> with just like huge streaks of uh, of guts spewing around. <laughs> and you were like, we, yeah. up. So it's kind of like, so we're at the kind of the level, we're at the, the era, so, you know, the way that kind of um, shooters have... Um, have looked back nostalgically over the last sort of few years, um, and we're at the kind of kingpin to uh, to fear <laughs> kind of era now. I suppose that's about like a three or four years, isn't it? I don't know how long there was between the three, but like ultra violence and jibs and real spaces. Yeah, I saw um, uh, a new indie FPS um, uh, in the style of Heretic. Remember Heretic, the like fantasy one? Oh yeah, um, got little it, hand. yeah. But the cheeky part was um, uh, it has the word Heretic in its name. I've got to try and remember uh, what it's called now. See if I can look it up. Oh, this rings a bell actually. But yeah, I'm sure if, we, if I search for like indie indie shooter Heretic, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a YouTube video of top five upcoming Doom slash Heretic inspired FPS indie games. <laughs> So there's five of them, I guess. Oh, and there's loads of... A medieval is, is not the one I'm thinking of, but um, that is also Heretic-inspired. Um, yeah. Uh, I did like Heretic a lot, actually. Yeah, me day. too. Yeah. I had a real, like... It was... Oh, here it is. Undaunted, the Heretic one. <laughs> the Heretic one? It's literally one. called Undaunted, the Heretic one. <laughs> the one so, who's a heretic? Or, or like, this I is think, the first in the series? I wonder if this is like actually a play on words. I think it might be... Because it, it just about scans as a fantasy title, doesn't it? It's a bit weird, but you could believe a fantasy game is called that. But also, if you forget what it is... Oh, it's the heretic one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I like them because um, there was a sort of sense of depth. Like, there was a, the, the environments were really, really big. They were like the really, really big uh, end of the Doom level sort of size uh um pool but then there was loads of you know th there was so much to do in them and you'd be sort of backtracking from one end to the other with items and things i like that i think mm. i wouldn't like it anymore <laughs> i remember my fondest memory of that like um that series of games heretic and hexen was in hexen 2 um the bosses were i think the four horsemen of the apocalypse and I, I was playing the assassin class where you get extra damage for backstabs, like 300% or something. And death is riding around on a winged horse. And I was able to jump onto the back of his horse <laughs> and just ride along <laughs> with him. And I'm standing directly behind him. So every hit I get is a backstab. <laughs> just standing on death's horse, backstabbing him endlessly. <laughs> like, what are you going to do about it? Huh? Huh? <laughs> That's the game I choose to play death at if I ever have to fight for my life. <laughs> Um, so I found the name of the game, the, the fear game. It's Trepang 2. Um, <laughs> the number two, although there's no space between Trepang and the number two, so it's all one word. I mean, it's not a word. It's got a numero on it. You know what I mean. Trepang 2. Yeah. 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 Oh, this does look like fear. Holy shit. It really does. <laughs> 
It looks pretty good, though. It looks like well, nicely made. Yeah, it's got. I mean, like that's why I wanted to, to download it because it does look like it would be satisfying to make those men explode, even if it did also seem ropey in so many other ways. Or I guess they, they've yeah. just they've just really focused where they've spent their resources. Yeah, I think. like it's a well scoped game. Like the shotgun and the sparks and everything all looks really professional, and then the actual levels <laughs> less so. Yeah. I wonder what Sony's talking about. Probably talking about NAC 3. <laughs> it's definitely going to be NAC 3, isn't it? That's what it I Actually, uh, <laughs> this is going to be really dumb if we spend a lot of time speculating about PlayStation when, when it's actually happening. But I went to Twitter to look this uh, heretic thing up and like the last three tweets were just people just screaming. <laughs> so I think something cool was happening. Oh my God. We can't look. Just don't like, close down Twitter. Like, we can't look at that. <laughs> this has got to be a clean, clean pod. Clean pod. Um, <laughs> um, there was another. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go on. I was going to change <laughs> subjects. So, me too. I was going to mention the the Black Lives Matter bundle on itch.io. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> All right then. Which is which is basically. Extraordinary. It's nearly. It's, it's, I think it's almost. Well, it's, if not, it might have broken over it, but five million dollars, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's in that region, and it's a thousand games, which is. I think it started at like four hundred or something, and then just. I think it's people, more than a thousand. Add stuff to it. I think it's one thousand four hundred now. Oh my god! That's <laughs> got to be almost everything that's on it, yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Are developers adding their games to Itch.io at this point, like purely to be as part of this bundle? Because yeah, I don't sure remember things be. like Oxenfree and stuff being on Itch before. Um, there is. It does have quite a few, like sort of. I don't know what the term for it would be, but like big indies on there, like ones that you know maybe cost thirty dollars and have and were shown on stage at E3 and stuff. Like those do come out on Itch.io, but then no one really notices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, given I mean, that there's so much, um, uh, it is helpful that uh, uh, several people, including uh, John Walker on uh, Buried Treasure, uh, have picked out um, highlights from there. And so I just noticed uh, one of his is Wide Ocean Big Jacket, which I played. I don't think I've talked about it here, have I? Um, it's a short narrative game about going on a camping trip with um, your aunt, I think. Um, okay. And your boyfriend, I wish... My only criticism of the game, I really, really liked it. My only criticism is it should have a comma in the title. <laughs> I wish it was called <laughs> I wish it was called Wide Ocean Comma Big Jacket, because it is those are it's not a weird, like complex, bizarre title. It's just two concepts, but they didn't separate them in any way. And so I couldn't pass or remember the title and I kept thinking it was my big wide open morning jacket. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, it's just really played. nice time. It's one of those like um, very sort of gentle, tender games. It doesn't. There's no big explosive uh, <laughs> revelations in it or anything. It's just a really nice and atmospheric, and the characters are really interesting and well drawn and sweet. I haven't played that game, but I played one of the previous ones. Um, I think it's called Little Party, which is like twenty minutes long or something. Uh, and you, it's 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 very similar in terms of his aesthetic. These kind of pastel colors flat textures but a 3d world and you are the mum of a teenage daughter who's having a party with all her friends round to your oh, house yeah. 
and it's like a small party, like uh, six people are coming around to do like craft projects together, and you as the mum have to like hover on the periphery and like make guacamole for them <laughs> and like, <laughs> like kind of chaperone to make sure that nothing too bad happens. But otherwise, you're not you're not invited or a part of the party really. So you you know you just watch the cool teens kind of hang out and oh that's that's interesting because this is this one is also interested in the that relationship between adults and kids in a in a non-contentious way like they're not enemies or then it's not a hostile Mm. relationship it's quite a healthy nice relationship but it's also awkward and and has this distance in it yeah so these are these are mostly sort of delivered through the, the stories delivered by text, is it, or is it, um, you know, things yeah. happening in the three D world? The um, mostly text and just like really tiny tasks, just like go get some firewood and um, mm. bring this hot dog to this person, and um, then you sort of like switch to switch perspectives, um, and uh, it does a strange thing where every time someone speaks, the whole screen completely cuts to black, almost like a silent movie. Um, and the speech is just on a black screen with just like a, a portrait of someone's face. Uh, I don't entirely know why <laughs> that is done because um, it's quite jarring, but um, the dialogue itself is really good. So I didn't mind. Yeah. With Little Party, it like puts the objectives up on screen in an enormous font that fills your entire screen. And so when you get <laughs> the objective to go make guacamole, it just says, make guac in giant like, <laughs> on your screen, which I which I deeply appreciate. Um, but there's so, there's so many great games in this this Ichio bundle though. Like the one I wanted to shout out was a short hike. Oh yeah, um, which was like probably the, my favorite game last year. I assume you guys have talked about it on the pod before. It's, it's the yeah. best game that Alex hates because its dialogue is too uh, <laughs> too sort of cutesy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that coming up. Um, <laughs> last episode or something, but I think I, we did. Yeah, we did a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I can. We see talk that. about it every week actually. Since <laughs> <laughs> really, still very angry about it. <laughs> uh, um, but I, I, I didn't. I find it a good, a good example of the form. Although I do agree that that kind of tone of writing is becoming a, a little bit too widespread, but. Because I, even at the time, I knew that it was, um, you know, this was its be- a fantastic example of it, which fit within the game really well. Like, there's, there's nothing wrong with it in that game <laughs> at all. And that game is just so lovely. Mm, yeah. I'm just trying to see whether, because um, there's, a, there's a game, there's a smaller game uh, that I played recently and not finished yet. So I don't really have that much to say about it. But If Found... Um, oh, yeah. I'm wondering whether it found it's in there because, um, but this is a um, this is an Annapurna uh, um, uh, published game uh, in which you it's it's a it's very visual novelly in terms of how its story is delivered, but um, uh, it is delivered by you basically using your mouse as a, um, an eraser and you clean the screen as you, so you, as you see text on the screen, which could be presented as if it's in a, um, is often presented as if it's in a scrapbook. And um, you, uh, you, you, uh, you uh, 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 wipe it out of the way. And once you've taken enough out, um, you will get uh, a new, uh, a new page of uh, 
of, of, of kind of words and, and the story <laughs> continues. But it's set really interesting in West Ireland um, on an island about um, a, a girl returning to her parents while studying in Dublin. And the kind of, it's kind of the opposite of what you were talking about in terms of um, a family, uh, you know, a, a sort of parental relationships, which isn't fraught. This one is definitely fraught. Um, and I'm sort of, we'll be finding out more about how it turns out to be fraught. But it's a really interesting um, mechanic, I suppose you call it, that you'd sort of wipe the, 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 clean, the, the, the screen clean in order to progress the story. Um, yeah. It kind of, it's quite traumatic feeling to get rid of the words that you're reading it's really hmm. an odd an odd emotion comes with it it's quite it's really interesting uh, it looks to me like it is not in the bundle i found a like a spreadsheet you can search and i didn't it didn't come up yeah so that was irrelevant to talk about <laughs> <laughs> um uh quadrilateral cowboys in it we should play that is again. it yeah oh, goodness there's a lot of RPGs as well. I actually bought um, a Band of Blades, which is a pen and paper RPG that I've been playing over the couple, last couple of years. But I thought it's final, finally that I should just have, own a copy. I bought it <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, and now it's in in this bundle, which is <laughs> which is totally absolutely fine because <laughs> because like I was actually I'm, I must admit I'm a little makes me a little nervous this kind of thing because I don't think that I should expect anything back for um, giving to charity. And, um, and it feels like uh, this is basically for a lot of people, this is $5 for 1,400 games, which doesn't sit that comfortably with me. Like I, I, I'm pointing no fingers at anyone. Like I don't, you know, but there's something slightly disquieting about all this to me. Well, did you have a problem with the Humble Bundle? Which I suppose is the same. It's the same deal, isn't it? No, it's not quite um, the same. Usually, a normal humble bundle. There's a split between devs, humble, and the charity. So um, uh, that's true. There's like a default split, and, but also you can decide how much for each if you want. Right, and I think also like I, you know, I I really like Itchio as well. Like I think that it is a wonderful thing, and um, you know, and obviously it it doesn't make them anything like the revenue that um, Steam or any other online um, storefront um, does, and and rightly, um, Itch is not taking any profits from um, any of this bundle, you know, as you'd expect, um, but like you know. It must, this must, I'm wondering whether this will present Itch.io with serious kind of challenges in the future whereby, um, you know, like a lot of people who have Itch accounts now have 1,400 games and they have <laughs> little reason to ever revisit, you know? Yeah, um, they've, they've had to like change how some of their system works because they didn't want to just add them all to your library in like the normal way because it would make your right. library kind of unusable <laughs> as... Um, as uh, old school games journalists might remember from the way press accounts used to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a list of everything on Steam. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I bet that the factor whereby people are not fully aware of what they do and don't own and forget uh, that they own all this stuff um, will be pretty strong. I imagine, uh, I, I bet... I will buy something on Steam in the foreseeable future that it turns out I already own in this bundle, but didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also bet that um, 
I mean, if it, if this, I'm sure this has created caused a whole load of people to create itch.io accounts who didn't have one have them before. Yeah, true. And when a new thing comes out, if they if the message gets through to them that like, oh, this is the uh, this is These the platform the that gives the the dev the biggest share and um, it's got this kind of friendly indie vibe. Um, if that makes them inclined to buy there instead of somewhere else, then that, it will be in itch.io's interests. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I do wonder if you're going to end up with a kind of market for secondhand itch.io accounts where I'll sell you my itch.io account. It's got 1,400 games on it for $30. Because, <laughs> you know, people would look at that and think, that's a really good deal, $30. Like, that's my only problem with this bundle is, like, it's got... I, I know it didn't always have 1,400 games in it and they've added that over time, but probably could have raised more money for charity and asked for $10. <laughs> yeah, but there's that fear, isn't there? Like, oh, will as many people invest in it? You know, I, it is, I, I way, suppose that's... Um, so the way Humble handled it was pretty cool, which was that you unlock uh, some games if you pay more than the average which is sort right. of a self-balancing thing because it means, you know, if the, av the average will keep on going up as long as the average is lower than what it could be. And once it hits, you know, the point at which people are like, oh, that's actually, you know, maybe too much to pay for these, um, it will stop there and it will, you know, go down a bit. And so it kind of, that's quite a clever way of making it automatically find the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. But then I suppose with... 1400 games <laughs> the um administrational <laughs> cost of of sorting out all those tiers may well have um yeah ended you <laughs> ended only get the first shows. 1300 if you pay five dollars <laughs> <laughs> oh man there are so many good games on here kids is really good that's a good game minute is in there that's a good Minutes game in there yeah celeste is in there good lord we're just reading the internet now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, Graham, what have you played recently? Ah, I have played Wildfire, um, mm. which is a side-scrolling 2D stealth game, which has been in development for a long while. Do you remember, I think it was a website first called Sneaky Bastards? Yeah, I do. They wrote uh, some good things about Thief and, yeah, lots of immersive sims. Yeah, lots of stuff about them stealth games. And then the people behind that website kind of went on and started making their own game in Game Maker. And eventually it got picked up by Humble, and that's Wildfire. And what it is, it's, it's a stealth game in which you are a witch, and in the opening moments of the game, you are nailed to a cross and set on fire and, to your own surprise, survive and now have elemental powers. You have the ability to see a source of fire in the environment, draw it into your hands and then cast it out again in order to set things on fire. So, the, um, so the, 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 the village folk were basically right, so they should have to... <laughs> Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not your own village that do it notably it's like uh the city from far away that comes uh I, d I don't fully know why and sets your entire village on fire 
Just <laughs> I want, He's punitive. Kettle, Alex, kettle. I want to read your... Can you write an op-ed for RPS now on like why the village people are right in, <laughs> in wildfire? In defense of the village people. <laughs> and, like, other than you, though, they don't don't seem to kill any of the other villagers. They just like capture them. And so each level, then, um, you're sneaking past guards trying to make your way towards an exit but you have this optional objective of rescuing the villagers and carrying them with you to shrines and as the game goes along you get other elemental powers you eventually get earth powers which allow you to create vines um, that you can climb up in the environment and you get water powers which allow you to put out fires or eventually that becomes ice abilities which you can use to freeze guards in place and that sort of stuff and with the fire, like it kind of spreads dynamically through the levels, burning up any kind of grass, any vines, anything made out of wood and that sort of stuff. So you're using that to clear a path. Um, and, but you're also supposed to use it in order to panic guards so you can squeeze past them. But this is where you get into, like there are these weird tensions in the game. First of all, like, I've introduced this as a stealth game and then immediately I'm talking about fire and a notable thing about fire is that it's not very stealthy <laughs> and I feel like the game never resolves the conflict between those two things and it never resolves the conflict between it's all these systems leaning towards being this systemic stealth game, a kind of Dishonored-like experience where you've got a toolkit and you have to work out how to how you are going to choose to use that toolkit to overcome the obstacles in front of you. And these levels, which are um, often setting you very particular objectives that just render that toolkit completely moot, like you can't use it anymore. Hmm. And the fire, you know, it's called Wildfire. It's from the maybe from the gunpoint school of naming games, <laughs> except <laughs> instead of like, whereas you decided to kind of pull back on gunpoint uh, as a, as a mechanic within that game, they stuck with it maybe because the name, it was in the name of the game when perhaps they shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, like, so you will say uh, you'll be hiding in some grass and there will be a villager that you want to rescue, but the only way to do that is to take fire from somewhere in the environment to where he is and then burn the ropes that are bonding him together. For some reason, you don't have a knife or anything that can <laughs> cut the ropes. You have to use fire to do it. It's the only way. <laughs> Or maybe there's a maybe there's a door that there's no way to get through. Like there's no switch to open it or anything like that. You just have to burn it. And so you've got to get fire from point A to point B so you can use it to, to solve this problem. But maybe you can't catch just simply carry it between those two points because there is water somewhere on the route. And if you pass through the water, it's going to extinguish your flame. Oh, it's like waterfalls, that kind of thing, is it? Yeah, there's waterfalls you can jump through. There's, there's things you can, there's pools of water you can swim through to go through caves and that sort of stuff. And so that will extinguish the flame, at which point, you don't have any fire anymore. Like it doesn't respawn back in the location that you've drawn it from. And so that's it. You've just got not got any fire left anymore in this area. You're going to have to work out some other way of doing it. Or what you can sometimes do is you can say, well, I can't carry the fire and swim through there because it will extinguish the flames. But I can, from this point, throw the fire in order to set that bit of grass up there on fire 
then I can swim round and about this platform, come up the other end and grab the fire from the other side as it continues Hmm. to burn through. Um, But every time you set grass on fire, grass is one of your only sources of cover. It's only one of the only things in the environment you can actually hide behind. And so by setting that fire, you've just removed one of the pieces of cover. You've also potentially panicked the guards. Now, when the guards get panicked, they act in unpredictable ways. Like you can predict the route the fire is going to take. You know it's going to burn through the grass and then it's going to reach that vine and it's going to go up there. It's going to burn through some more grass and then it's going to burn some wood. You can plot that out, but you don't know exactly where the guards are going to run when they panic. And sometimes they will run and jump off a cliff and die, which is annoying because you've just lost out on the optional objective in order to not kill any guards. It doesn't feel very mm. satisfying. There's bonus points you get for doing that, which you can then spend to upgrade your skills and that sort of stuff. So there is actual value in keeping them alive. Um, or maybe the, he jumps off a cliff and survives the fall, and now that guard is in a really awkward place where you're going to have to get past him later. But at the same time, the fire has also removed all the cover. So you've just made the level harder for yourself and by using the fire in a way that feels, again, really unsatisfying. And there's a real struggle, I think, in the game a lot of the time to give you situations where you can come up with a plan, enact that plan, and then feel clever for enacting that plan. More often than not, chaos ensues. Um, which would be fine. Like that's not really a stealth game, but I don't mind a game like a, even a stealth game where you are bubbling on the edge of things going out of control and you dying. But then I don't find that the rest of the mechanics and systems support that either. So like the idea with the panic system is that if a guard spots you, you can't jump over him. He will just like smack you with a sword if you try, and you will lose health. Um, and very often not be able to get up again before he hits you two more times and kills you, which is very frustrating mm. because you can have three health and just it doesn't count for anything, especially if you've got like a guard on either side of you. You have no way to escape that situation because the oh. elemental powers you've got, you can't use them quickly enough and they're completely dependent on drawing them from the environment. So if there's no water or or a vein or fire nearby, then there's nothing you can do. And even if there is, you probably don't have time to grab it, draw it into your hand and then do something meaningful with it. Um, but even if like the idea is the guards panic and then you can get past them at that point, like, cause they're not going to hit you basically as you run past that encourages you to move quickly to get past them before they start panicking. But the platforming is not designed for that sort of, it doesn't feel good enough basically in that kind of swift movement where you're shifting seamlessly between running, jumping, sliding, which are move all moves you can do. Um, you it it feels quite heavy the character moves quite heavily it's like you have you, you struggle to get momentum in order to do large jumps you're constantly losing your men- momentum to things in the scenery and that sort of stuff um and you, the controls are fiddly enough that you will make mistakes basically if you try and move too quickly either you will run too quickly into a new area and a guard will spot you and now you've just kind of screwed up like another part of the level because you've been immediately spotted or you will just screw up a jump and you will end up in some spikes and again it doesn't feel satisfying in any way and it doesn't feel like it was fully your fault i feel like i'm anytime i'm playing this game i'm constantly at odds with what 
it seems to suggest that it wants me to do um, because it seems to be telling me three or four or five conflicting different things. And that's like, that's one set of levels. It also regularly has levels which have their own specific scripted objective, which only exist for that level. Um, hmm. So some levels where you have to rescue a certain number of people, like at least one person, say, um, or some levels in which you are, uh, I can't remember what kind of anim- animal it is, but they look a lot like corgis. <laughs> um, you, you play le- certain levels as corgis, and, uh, and you can, <laughs> and you can um, bark or growl in order to frighten um, the guards, or you can run up walls as corgis can. Or there'll be a level where all of the guards are corgis, and corgis are afraid <laughs> of fire and so you have to hold fire in your hand you can't cast it out if you cast it out the 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 corgis will briefly panic but then the the fire will burn out and then they'll come and eat you alive essentially so you have to keep it in your hand and use it to like slowly cause them to back away into locations um so that you can get past but Again, like that's just obliterated this tool set that it's given you because you've got water powers, but they're completely irrelevant on that level. You've got grass powers, but they're completely irrelevant on that level. Um, and so I find it a very frustrating experience. It feels like a game that has a lot of good ideas, a lot of polish, like the music's nice, the art is nice. It's quite a long game. There's lots of levels to it. I do like. I don't mind that it's. Like I would like the script, the kind of scripted version of this game, where each level is a particular thing. Even when it's giving me missions like escort missions, which are infamous for being frustrating, they actually I don't mind that so much. It's the I don't know second to second what which game I'm playing, mm. uh, and so mm. I, like I spent a long time wondering: Am I just playing this wrong? Am I just getting the wrong? Uh, and you know, eventually I went and watched. Twitch streams of other people playing it, and that made me feel a lot better about myself because they were all just like swearing at it and getting frustrated. <laughs> Is it clear to you um, why? So it sounds like the fact that when you pick up fire, um, it's gone from the source as well. That means if you do anything with it that wasn't the thing you needed it for, uh, you're potentially screwed because you sort of can't try again. Is it clear to you why that's the mechanic? Like why why doesn't the fire just stay there? Would that have worked? I think that would have worked. And there are actually, like, there are magic shrines um, in the world in which you can draw, you can use them as an infinite source of fire, but there's maybe only one of those per level. And so it's a hell of a long way back (laughs) in order to go get that fire. Uh Um, And very often, if you've left a bunch of guards alive, it's maybe you got to go past 15 guards again in order to go back and get fire. So it's not, it's not really Uh designed. Like the game doesn't expect you to do that. I don't feel like, and like, no, I mean, I think, I think there's, I guess there's a concern in stealth games. A lot of the time, like Hitman, for example, if the guns were too good or felt too nice, maybe you would, the players mm. would stop trying to be stealthy and they would just go out with a machine gun and just kill everybody. Mm. Uh, and then the level would be done. And so I think maybe there's con- like the des- designers of this were perhaps concerned that if you just had too much fire, 
that you could just spam fire in order to set all the guards alight right, and everyone yeah, put everything down and it would become trivial. Um, and I can sort of see that as a concern, but I think putting the constraint on the environment was the wrong way to go. Like, I think if... Like, just make it make the fire come back, but make it come back after a period of time, basically. Yeah. Hmm. You know, and that would have been my solution to it. Whether it was, like, you just had fire as an ability that was on some sort of cooldown, or just for some reason this campfire is going to catch fire again <laughs> of its own accord after 30 seconds have gone past or something. Um, I think that would have made a big difference. I don't think it would have solved all the problems, though, because it's the panic mechanic that which is a nice, now that I say it out loud, a very satisfying thing to say. The panic mechanic. The <laughs> band name. <laughs> is the thing that I think just doesn't work for me because it's encouraging you to play quickly in a game where it's a stealth game and everything else is telling you to play it slowly and be thoughtful and approach it in a thoughtful way. Um, just, I would let players jump over guards who've been alerted rather than just having that be an auto fail where they get smacked yeah. by a sword yeah. um and i would probably just get rid of the panic mechanic entirely because it just adds this degree of unpredictability to it that means you can never enact a plan that you had in your head when you were you know hiding in the bushes surveying the situation trying to work out how you were going to get past it's funny because that like i sort of vaguely remember reading you know stealth stealthy bastards is that what it was yeah sneaky, sneaky bastards sneaky bastards yeah it's a game um, called stealth bastards it's yeah. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on there yeah um i, I remember them being it was a critics website about stealth games and they had very strongly held and like Often I agreed with them. I remember, um, you know, opinions about how stealth games should work, and and I'm sure that one of their big things was that predict predictability is is massively important to stealth games. Like the more predictable they are, in general, the more interesting they are. Like you know, you know, maybe they have lots of systems so every individual thing is predictable, but in concert you can't quite see you know what's going to happen next. But like. So when how do do you know for instance in this game how far you'll be safe with fire before guards kind of how does it show you like ranges of guards kind of awareness and things like that it doesn't is the thing like a lot of people were comparing it to i always get this mixed up is it mark of the ninja or mask of yeah. the ninja mark of the ninja tony of the ninja <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people were comparing it to that because it's a 2D stealth game. But in that game, you have all the guards have vision cones. Yeah, vision cones. Yeah, yeah. Where there are no vision cones in this. And there is, like, they can see you from quite far away. They do go through alert states. So if they are, if they see you from far away, they just get a little bit suspicious. And then that suspicion meter will start to tick up unless you move into a hiding or cover or something at that point um and then they go into if, the, if that meter fills up they'll go into um proper alert running at you primed for combat um but if they see you at a point where they're really close by they just go instantly into that combat state there and there's no moment of recovery um and so like and because there's no vision cones you don't know where the the boundaries are between those two things. Like mm. sometimes, you know, you get platforms, uh, say, which are the height of your character. 
And sometimes I swear you can go against, so like I'm thinking of like a, a, a stepped platform where you're on one level and there is a level above you, which is the same height as you are with a guard on it. And sometimes you can stand against the wall between those two levels and I swear the guard can't see you. And sometimes they can. <laughs> they Sometimes they can look down all of a sudden and see you. Hmm. And it's, it's not clear when they're going to see you. And it's not clear when they're going to see you and just be suspicious and when they're just going to be instantly angry. And then at the same time, sound is a big thing in this. So if you jump and land on a ground, that's going to cast a big circle of sound, which will, at the point at which the sound is made, you see the circle expand out. Hmm. At which point it's too late. You can't do anything about it. Yeah, there's useful information <laughs> if, if it was before you made the jump. <laughs> yeah, and so like you can sort of then start to go, okay, well, that makes that much sound. Next time around, I need to wait for that guard to very slowly walk farther away before I make this jump. Oh, shit, I misjudged it. All right, okay, reload that last save. And you spend a lot of time reloading that last save over and over again. And when I was um, playing it, I went back and I, Tom, I read your post that you wrote about... Metal Gear Solid Five, and it's oh, yeah. failure spectrum. Yeah, you know the thing of like how lenient guards are in that game, and it has the thing where if you are close enough to a guard when you pop up and he actually spots you and he's going to go into an alert state, you then get that moment of slow motion. Yeah, where if you shoot him in the head fast enough with a silenced weapon, that's it. nothing bad happens there's nothing like that in this game if you get spotted when you're close to someone they're just angry and screaming literally screaming (laughs) rushing at you you can't jump over them you're probably going to alert two or three other guards and then you don't have many tools for at that point to deal with it other Mm. than to like run away hide and and wait and you often can't run away and hide because you can't jump over the guards that are alerted so you can't go anywhere does it? Um, can you save anywhere? Um, yeah, there's no manual saves. Instead, <laughs> there are very regular auto saves, and there are occasional checkpoints, which are actual objects in the the shrines that you can draw infinite fire from, are also checkpoints to save. Um, but th- I, like, I found that quite confu- conf- um, frustrating because the the auto saves. Like the checkpoints are often like two and a half minutes ago, you hit a checkpoint. That's quite a long time. That's a lot of progress yeah. you're going to lose if you go back to that. Whereas the autosaves are sometimes like 11 seconds ago, which is not very long at all. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that's so short, it's just going to put you back into the chaos that you just caused. Like <laughs> the chaos will happen and you will right. go, okay, well, I'll try and play around this. And then you go, oh no, I can't, I'm fucked. And then you go to reload a save and it's like, well, I can either load back into an earlier point of the fuck up, um, which is no use to me at all, or I have to go back two minutes ago. I just, yeah, yeah, I I really want it to have a manual save. But then at the Mm. same time, if it did have a manual save, I think I would be saving every three seconds in this game before I did anything I would be saving because it's not giving me the information I need to make the decisions. Um, Saving every three seconds, huh? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how, like, I think, you know, there doesn't seem to be, it seems to like the idea that you would be, you know, recovering from problems as well, but not give the fact that it doesn't give you any tools really to cope with panics. Like, I don't know, again, a good 
often good um, stealth games allow you to mess up and then give you lots of, you know, it's fun to get yourself out of problems. I was thinking about when, um, you know, when you were talking about, you know, what happens when you take fire from a source and, you know, sort of how do you recover from that state? Like, you know, you, you mentioned Hitman and the Hitman thing is you can often engineer yourself into terrible situations, but then it's a fun game engineering your way back out of the fact that you've left the item in the area that is now, you know, under lockdown or you don't have access to it anymore. Um, and now you've got to work your way in. And like, that's part of the game too. If you make, if you make, um, recovery part of the game, then you can get away with lots of kind of issues with you know things not being as predictable as as other games. Yeah, and that's like I'm not I'm not I, I confess I am not good at stealth games. Like I don't I've never ghosted a level of Hitman in my life or whatever whatever they call it. Is it Silent Assassin? I don't think I've ever done that in my life. My entire experience is this kind of farcical. <laughs> Austin Powers like domino effect of hitting one guy over the head and being seen by someone else and then hitting that guy over the head and then being seen by someone else until just like I've got 18 bodies <laughs> breadcrumbs across a level everyone's stuffed inside a cupboard me on my seventh costume um, and that's that's how I like to play these games and like um, you know, I've, I've, I do like games that push in either direction either go full systemic or, or are really strong strict in terms of stealth but yeah the oscillating back and forth and it's like kind of to again compare it to one of tom's games um like heat signature does a really good job with this stuff with first of all you can pause the game in order to think about what you're going to do to get yourself out of the situation you're in but wildfire is kind of like if the all your teleportation abilities in Heat Signature also caused a new part of the ship to explode if you use it. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, the powers I have in order to deal with this situation just make this situation worse in every way. <laughs> the only ability I have is to set things on fire. <laughs> like, like, like I'm cursed more than I am actually empowered within these situations. <laughs> See, I quite like the idea of a game in which, like, you're a witch who's accidentally become, you know, endowed with kind of um, elemental powers, which are really dangerous. <laughs> and now she's got to sneak through a load of guards. Like, I don't know, that's that that could be a good setting. <laughs> but it sounds like you're kind of meant to enjoy having the powers. Yeah, it's split halfway between the two. Because, yeah, I would love a kind of... King Midas simulator where I just clumsily yeah. went around <laughs> Mr. Magoo like turning everything into gold uh, it's a lot of a lot of different references I'm mixing together there <laughs> Mr. Magoo <laughs> Midas the, the, the long tradition of, um, of uh, linking between those <laughs> what have you been playing Alex I've been playing the same thing as Tom I've been playing yeah. Monster Train Choo 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 choo. Choo choo, motherfuckers. Yeah. I've been really enjoying it. Are you still really enjoying it, Tom? Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely good. <laughs> it's, uh... I can t- Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, like, th- I, the reason I ask that question is that um, I keep expecting it to lose its um, appeal at any moment. Yeah. Because, um, like, so, so let's rewind. Um, so Monster Train is a deck building uh, 
game um, with a lot of similarities to, to um, say, the Spire in the sense that you're dealt a hand of cards. In this case, though, um, you are playing... Uh, some of those cards are, um, are units, uh, monsters that you're placing down, and some of them are spells, which will deal damage or heal your units or um, buff them and, and do various other things. Um, and you are defending... For some reason, the theming here is insane, but um, <laughs> you are you are uh, the forces of hell, and you have a train. Unfortunately, a bunch of angels are trying to get on the train and smash up um, the <laughs> crystal that is powering your train, and that's not good. So you, it's a crystal of so fire, they, isn't it? Yeah, and also your train uh, is not long; it's high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's because. Like... <laughs> they must have length, but the actual gameplay revolves around vertical floors, which is a very strange thing to do with a train metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So the theming is mad, but I quickly forgot about what, what I was yeah. actually doing. Um, the, the angels start at the bottom floor and they're trying to work their way up to the top and they have to go through your floors of your angels and your demons and mushroom men, uh, plants, uh, waxen gentry. Yeah, the, um, the faction themes are... Like they, okay, so they're all factions of hell. They're clans of hell, and you discover them in this order. Um, the first one is like just demons, demons with horns and axes and all. You that can stuff. think, okay. Yep, the next that one fits. is um, is like nature and plants and and uh, all that kind of thing. And the third okay. one is, is the sea and like lords of the sea and and uh, frost and all this elemental stuff. Uh, and then the fourth one is like Umbra, which is like the they're almost like the gluttony faction about eating things and gorging and all this like hellish <laughs> stuff. And then the last one is candles. It's <laughs> 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 the theme of the final faction is candles. And it's not just and like the they're, they're called the melting remnant or something. Um, but it's like it's they really went into candles. Like it's not just a kind of vague thematic thing of oh the units burn out and all this other stuff. They're literally made of wax. Uh, they literally it's an important <laughs> distinction which units have wicks and which ones don't. If it has a wick, then it means it's going to burn down. And if it doesn't have a wick, then it's it's part of the wickless uh, subfaction. And um, <laughs> those ones are like themed around kind of Victorian. Uh, some of them are like royalty, and some of them are like thugs and stuff. <laughs> but they're amazing like it's both uh unique i certainly haven't encountered a candle themed faction before <laughs> uh, but also like the art is brilliant for them they look so yeah. cool they, like each yeah. unit such a uh, such a lovely inventive concept that combines candles and victorian thugs for some reason. <laughs> it is and it yeah, really does swing and it, it actually really perfectly kind of represents the fact that in play it feels like the game is just going off the rails it feels like uh sometimes that you're absurdly overpowered that nothing can stand in your way and you've broken the game sometimes you feel that i can't possibly win mm. but but um i found it endlessly well so far i found it absolutely enthralling and much more balanced than I ever thought it would be. But I'm yeah. expecting that to be broken. I'm expecting you to tell me like they like, nope, I'm this is it. Up and <laughs> the table and I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I keep waiting for that too. I think I've been in the past I've maybe been a bit bullish with uh my or fast to uh, declare a new crown in, in genres uh, that I love. So I remember when Cave Blazers came out, um, 
It's that's mm. a game that's very much like Spelunky, but it has a load of things about it that are just way more sort of satisfying than Spelunky. And each run is more different than a run in Spelunky. And you can you develop in your character in a kind of RPG type way, and just so much going for it that was um, that I preferred to Spelunky. That I was sort of tempted to say, like, I think I prefer this to Spelunky. Uh, but now, of course, I haven't played that in many years, and I've I have gone back to Spelunky more recently. And so I'm very hesitant to sort of declare this, like, oh, it's taken Slay the Spice Ground. It's just better um, because the test of that, obviously, yeah, I. As far as I've seen, the fastest way for me to know whether I'll still be playing something in three years is to wait for three years. <laughs> I haven't found any accurate way to actually judge whether I'll get tired of something. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've been the same, like, one eye open on, like, when am I going to get bored of this? Surely this is going to um, uh, run out, especially because it's design philosophy. It's like, I think of it like... Slay the Spire is your strict uh, but loving parents who um, <laughs> well you can have you can have candy and chocolate and stuff on the on the weekends but you can't have it on weekdays and so every like one run in seven you get that combo that's just like oh my god I've got the poison card then the thing that doubles the poison then I upgrade it to triple poison then I've got the card that doubles the thing and then I double that and then I mirror this thing so I've got two copies of it and then the poison explosion and it's incredible but that's one run in seven and the other six are boring uh, or they're just kind of like, ah, that was all right. It, it, it worked out. I played, I ch- made smart choices. I got cars that were well-balanced. I could deal with all the different threats and I got through it and I won. Um, and then you go to monster train and they're like your cool uncle and aunt who are just like, Hey, we got loads of chocolate. Eat all the chocolate yeah. you like. Just have it whenever you like. like and <laughs> monster train is like, Oh, you want spikes? You can have spikes. You can have spikes. And then you can double the spikes. And then the spikes do twice as much damage. And then you do damage. that's multiple of the spikes. And then you can multiply that by three. And here's a unit that has crazy damage, but only has one health, but also you can just add 25 health and then you can double the health and then you can double the card and you can double it twice and you can take out all your trash. And you're like, how are you letting me do this? This is crazy. This surely can't stay fun forever because you're letting me have too much fun. I'm gonna have to burn out on this like surely if it's if everyone is like that then that becomes boring but not so far <laughs> yeah i mean it's less sort of um, you can say cert- I, I i find it much harder to um understand what's happening in this game like yeah. what have, what have i done like so yeah, say <laughs> the spire is sort of yeah like the, every decision you're kind of thinking right this is going to do that and then that's going to do that and you can generally predict what's going to happen and you know you can you know your decisions are based on that in this one um so a lot of the mechanics of the way that um, uh, damage is dealt and the order in which things happen and just sort of, um, you know, so you mentioned the umbral remnants. Is that what they're called? The, uh, the, the ones that gorge, the ones just, that... Just umbra, I think. Umbra, yeah. So they they eat um, uh, uh, sort of minor um, sort of... Morsels. Sort of, uh, Mortals, they're called, but they kind of sit in on your train, you know, and sort of. Oh, I can't, I, I can't, I can't explain this succinctly <laughs> enough. But essentially, the way that they interact, the way that in all the order in which your the units will power up on the on the basis of eating these things. I can't ever really f- figure out what's going to happen <laughs> and what value attack I might have at the end of it. Yeah. But I'll have a sense that it's probably good and I really enjoy watching it happen. And then it happens and then it's like, yes, <laughs> and that's, that's what's pulling me through. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it does do a nice thing where, uh, unlike Slay the Spire, it just tells you what's going to happen. Like you don't have to do in your head, like, okay, seven times three, that's 35 damage. Oh, it's not, mm. sorry. That's 21. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have uh, 23 health, but then I'm going to lose two because I'm going to attack him and he's got two thorns. And in Slay Spire, you're yeah. always burdened with doing that math of like, is it yeah. is this going to kill me or not? Um, how much health do I lose? And sometimes you're wrong and it's terrible. 
And this game just shows little icons and say, oh, at the end, when this all plays out, this guy's going to die. That guy's going to lose two health. This morsel will be eaten, not killed. Uh, this morsel will uh, just be killed without being eaten. And yeah, just with a few little icons, it explains all that stuff. Uh, I agree, though, that I don't know why it's going to work out that way. Yeah. And a classic, classic thing that keeps on happening to me is, so at the end of each uh, battle, the battles are much longer, or they're much more substantial things than Slay the Spire. Slay the Spire is a series of about 45 individual short fights, and a run of, of Monster Train is nine big combats. And so the right. combat will be multiple waves of enemies. Um, and I much prefer that, by the way. That feels a lot more sort of just chunky, and that the pacing is much more kind of uh, varied and um, uh, structured. Yeah. And um, uh, at the end of each fight, a boss shows up, and the the logic of it all changes slightly then because one of its clever things is that when enemies aboard the train and you've placed some monsters on that floor of the train they're going to fight the monsters but they're only going to do it for one round and then they're going to move up and so it's on you to deal enough damage to either kill them or weaken them enough that your your next floor of enemies will kill them um uh and so just having like a really really tough minions with don't do much damage is no good because they don't have to kill the minions to progress they can just walk past them they're going to take one round of damage and then they're going to move on um and so that gives a very natural reason why you need to specialize in damage because that's a problem that slay the spire tries to solve by other ways with each individual boss and and elite enemy having some way of scaling that means that going for safe and slow builds isn't viable and monster train just has like a universal elegant solution to that which is well they're just going to walk past you so <laughs> at some point you've got to deal <laughs> a lot of damage um, yeah. but the exception to that is when the boss shows up and when the boss shows up, they go up against your minions and they're just going to keep hitting them until they're all dead. And so that yeah. for, at that point, health does matter more. And, um, uh, the way it's, you still get a perfectly accurate preview of what's going to happen. You're told, okay, your boss is going to kill everyone on this floor and that the boss is going to take 500 damage or whatever, but he's going to move on. Um, but what it's, te- the, the process it's summarizing there is much more complex because there's going to be loads and loads of rounds of combat happening here and you won't get any chance to intervene. They all happen autoplayed. And sometimes it's literally like 25 rounds of combat and you watch them unfold in sort of super speed. Um, yeah. And the ultimate end result will be what it's, what's predicted. But uh, the the equations going on there are a lot more complex. And I the classic, classic thing that I keep doing is the boss, you know, wipes out my first floor, gets to my second floor, and it says, okay, the boss is going to die. He's going to, you know, kill your first unit. He's going to do 30 damage to the next unit, but he's going to die. And then I'll be like, okay, well, I've got, you know, three energy left. I've got this hand of cards. I'll just do, I'll just fire off a spell at him. I shoot him with a spell and suddenly he's not going to die. Suddenly he's going to wipe out everything on my floor. I'm like, what? What the fuck? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> why, why did me doing five damage to him uh, have this catastrophic effect and it'll be because he's got some ability that like every time a spell is cast on this floor he gains three strength and that's just enough to kill your biggest damage dealer on turn three instead of turn four and that means that now he's not <laughs> going to be around cascade. so he won't protect the next one and yeah I've got to I just had to like force myself if it says the boss is going to die click end turn for yeah. fuck's sake you've won do there's nothing else to be gained. just do nothing yeah <laughs> why do I keep thinking I can make it better like oh if I put a, if I put a, a minion here he will take the first hit of damage but no the reason you need the boss to hit your other unit first is that boss that unit is the one with spikes and so if he hits the other one all this time <laughs> then he has all this other time to build up his strength and then when he does hit the spikes when he kills it in one hit and the whole thing's fucked up it's <laughs> <laughs> so the causality is just is super fun and I, I, the, the, one of the li- little things i thought about is it's it's a very it, it, it feels a bit like team fight tactic, tactics or um you know any of those um uh uh those games what's that genre called um 
you know, uh, where you're sort of, uh, yeah, no, a chess, auto chess. Games. Oh, auto chess, right. So where where you've you're actually just watching a lot of time. You know, you're watching the results of yeah. these these card plays that you made playing out after you click end turn, and that's really interesting. Like, there's so much that it takes from um, from from um, say the spire, but like it adds so many other things from all over the place. And like, yeah. it turns out I really like watching the results of things that I've done. You know, it's like watching <laughs> the machine working. You know, and that's the auto chess thing working on there. It's really interesting. Yeah, um, the uh, I really like that that boss mechanic. The fact that the boss is kind of just going to storm through your floors and kill everything it possibly can. It's, it's that that trait is called relentless, which means it's going to yeah, keep right. fighting until everything is dead or it is dead, um, and that's really. And they're often like they're casting some horrific stuff on the way up as well, like things that sapping your attack power or um, putting up blockers all the time. Or there's just and there and you're told what the boss is going to be. The final boss is going to be at the start of your run, um, and then at the start of. Um, each battle you're told about what the boss is that you're going to be facing on that one because they're all subtly different and you get to know them over time um and so you're kind of you're kind of building towards dealing with that final rush like basically the game is dealing with eight mini rushes like that the mini bosses and then one final boss and 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 like and the deck that you're kind of crafting through the process of playing is very much an object in kind of juggling moment to moment survival with kind of working towards the goal of dealing with these horrific effects that you're going to be experiencing on that very final boss in particular. It's like, it's, and I, I have not really, I and mean, I've won maybe three in a row now, but yeah, I'm nowhere that. near. Yeah. The um, I actually spoke to the developers last week. Graham, um, the mechanic uh, about this is uh, sitting in your inbox now. Oh, lovely! <laughs> Thank you very they, much. <laughs> they told me, they told me that um, um, that that um, I can't remember what I was going to say. I was so excited about saying that I've done so much for Graham. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they explained why... the vertical train thing, didn't they? They did. They did explain the vertical crochet thing. Yeah, they did. They wondered. They wondered whether it'd be an issue, uh, but what they knew was a bigger issue was um, they'd played Artifacts, the um, the Valve made um, card mm. game, which is based in um, three different boards. I suppose you call them play areas, uh, laterally um, arranged, so in a row and you can't see them all on screen at the same time. So you're flicking from one to the other to see what the overall game state is. And they explained basically that like for them, that's why they didn't enjoy Artifact. They didn't go back to it because they couldn't hold everything in their head at the same time. By arranging the train vertically, um, you can see more. You can't see all three floors, but you can see two floors. You know, if you're at the bottom and you can see pretty much three floors if you're looking in the middle one so you've got much more awareness and there's a lot that less cognitive kind of dissonance i suppose you call it flipping up and down for some reason than it is flipping page to the left and right yeah definitely um, it doesn't feel like a struggle I, I find it quite easy to get an overview of what's going on and yeah know, um uh it, there was also like a really clear delineation of um the bottom floor is everything enters there pretty much um and that 
there are various ways to handle it, but what I usually do is just like that's my uh, I put my best units there, like the biggest, yeah. tankiest things in the, uh, in the front, and then the biggest damage dealer in the back. And then when stuff shows up, we're just going to do a shitload of damage to it right away. And yes, some of it will get passed, but when it does, then we can plan about okay, there's one guy left, and he's got five health, and I got a spell that can take care of that. And basically, like do uh, put my best foot forward, and then see what I need to do to mop up the rest. But the way, yeah. the fact that there are three different fights going on at once is potentially, um, depending on how many enemies you've, uh, you wipe out in each wave, um, that can get really interesting too, because there's, there's ways to, I had a, a situation where I had to write it down because what the solution was so elaborate that <laughs> I knew I wouldn't have to remember <laughs> it. So I had some enemies that slipped past my main, uh, death dealing floor and they'd got all the way to the top floor, um, the floor below my pyre. If they go above that, they're just going to hit the pyre. That means you lose health, uh, that, and that's your persistent resource. That health is going to carry over to future missions, so you really don't want to lose health if you can afford it. Um, and there's an enemy on the top floor. I've got nothing up there. I've just got nothing I can... Um, there's like one weak minion, and he's going to get killed before he even gets a hit in. So this, this enemy is going to um, slaughter him and then move on and do some damage to my pyre. And I am... Uh, out of energy completely. I can't afford... I have a, have a spell that could hit him, but, but it costs one energy. I have no energy. I've spent all my energy solving other problems. Um, but on my bottom floor is my... I was playing as the plant faction. I can't remember what the... So you actually play as two factions at once. So you, you pick a primary and a sort of secondary and you get cards from both. But the plant one was my main one, which meant I had the plant champion. And she's like super tough, but does no damage by default. Um, uh, and one of her abilities was that if she takes damage... I draw a card, um, and so she's on the bottom floor. She's not in trouble. She's going to be fine with with the people who are attacking her. Um, but I, I, I'd love to say I had this all planned out, but I was actually just kind of messing around. I couldn't do anything on the top floor. It's a disaster. I'm going to take damage. But on the bottom floor, I can heal my boss, uh, my champion, because uh, I have a zero-cost heal card. So I don't have any energy, but this is zero-cost. I heal her. She has an ability that when she's healed, she deals 35 damage to the front unit mm. on that floor. She yeah. does that, that kills the enemy. The enemy has an ability that when it dies, it damages the front unit of my side. And so <laughs> when it dies, it deals damage to her, which is no problem at all. It's like two damage, she has 70 health, it's no problem. But it triggers her revenge ability, which draws a card. <laughs> the card it draws is not one that can save my top floor, but it is a unit and it's a zero cost unit. And so I just can place it anywhere. And when I do, I have an artifact that means the first time I place a unit this turn, it reduces the cost of a random other card in my hand to zero. And the card it reduces <laughs> is the spell I need to kill the thing on the top floor. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> I was going to... Uh, there's, uh, so there's, there's one particular unit in the game that you don't... that isn't a member of any of the factions because you get it during special event. Have you come across the Spike Driver Colony? I so you mentioned it, and then I just got the event for it um, the other day, and you had already told me how it went for you. And I read the card, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I thought, no, <laughs> I don't want this. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to tell you about two two examples. I'm going to talk about two examples of of using this thing. So this is a this this card um, this unit costs nothing to cast to to to, to put into the train, um, but uh, it does one damage twice. So it has two attacks, but only of one damage, and it has one health. So it's basically useless. 
but it has an ability uh, called, I think it's called extinguish, where when it's killed, it copies itself into your deck. So now you have two of them. Um, so uh, this would mean you have two incredibly useless cards. <laughs> However, um, what you could do is upgrade it. Um, so one of the thing, one of the things that, that's kind of interesting about this game is that um, there are the shops in it. You don't buy. Uh, cards from them you buy upgrades um, primarily and um, and you can put two upgrades onto any card um, uh, but if there is an artifact which is like a slay the spire relic which allows you to carry three on them and there are opportunities also to have even more than that but um, but this means you can power them up increase you know give them special effects um raised attack and defense so you could i could uh raise my my spike driver colonies um attack and um health and and that's good but what is also true is that at the point um that it is killed what's copied over is not its base stats it's the stats that it had when it died so what you could <laughs> do is train this thing up over a run maybe put it on the top floor and just feed it upgrades, you know, in whatever way <laughs> kind of fits the particular battle you're on, um, powering it up and then engineer its death. And suddenly you have two of them. You know, <laughs> oh, so you it, it has to die to copy it as well? Has to die in order oh, to copy Oh, interesting. It so you've got to make it really good, but not too good. Yeah, exactly. So, so like that is a game in itself, you know, just suddenly. But then again, like what you could also do is what if you copy load like what if you just have loads of them <laughs> what if you just <laughs> and there's actually a relic um which uh i think it tie like does extinguish effects three times or maybe four times oh my god so every time it would die you'd get four copies <laughs> oh, um, no. you could fill your deck with these things zero <laughs> cost don't forget and they only co occupy one um, a one value of space on each floor and if you you know there's so much you could do with it like <laughs> it's also incredibly dangerous yeah like but my god i really want to try it like i haven't tried i haven't properly i've failed every time i have tried to um do a proper deck filled with these things did you maybe it's a little um, bit powered up have you played uh were you playing as umbra with any of those runs well, yeah. No, I, once I was with Spike Driver Colony, and um, yeah, because like, so Umbra is the one where that that feeds on stuff and powers up as yeah. a, as a result of feeding stuff. So you could easily feed up um, your Spike Driver that way. Yeah, because what I'm always doing is like I'll have my uh, you know sixty damage, sixty health unit that. Uh, I'm feeding that thing morsels and it's good. It's making it better, but it's making it like three damage better or three health yeah. better. And it's like, honestly, this isn't really going to, you know, win or lose me the game. But if the thing starts with one, one, <laughs> and you're adding like three each time with yeah, uh, that's six damage, yeah. like it. Yeah. And, I, and that's, that, that's this game really that, you know, this is what, why we're still playing it really excited because like, oh, oh, but this happened to me. And what if that happened? And it's really good at the moment. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a thing I really like that it does is, uh, like I say, there's fewer fights, but bigger fights. And a consequence of that is that between those fights, you uh, all the rewards that you're going to get are just along two different train tracks that you could take. And you mm. just have this binary choice, which do you go left or right? And each of those will have on it like three or four major rewards. 
and that's really generous things you feel like oh this yeah. is great like remove two cards from your deck for no cost yeah. or yeah. duplicate any card in your deck except your champion which is that one's amazing that is absolutely yeah. changes the, your run completely yeah. and i much prefer that to say the spires way of doing things where uh obviously there's, there's question marks all along the way and those could be anything um there's sometimes treasure chests and those are at fixed points and you always get them and then the, the main choice you're making is rest or smith and if you rest you restore some permanent health and if you uh, Smith, you upgrade a card, and I don't like that mechanic because it's basically snowballing. It means if your run is going well, you get to make it go better because you get to upgrade your mm. uh, card, and your deck is now stronger. You didn't didn't cost you anything. If your run's going really badly and you're low on health, all you can do is just top up your health a little bit because if you don't do that, you might die in the next fight. You kind of got to. And then if you do that, your deck didn't get any stronger, and your shitty deck is mm. what got you here. <laughs> the game's only going to get harder. And so typically, if I'm having to rest. Uh, at a site in say aspire i kind of starting to think my run's probably over it's probably never going to get better because i just can't afford to make things better whereas this i've never felt forced into a choice it's always been yes if i go left i'll restore some health but i'll also get to upgrade a spell i'll also get to duplicate a thing and uh i'm frequently i think it's almost always a difficult decision it's really rare that i actually have one yeah. oh it's definitely left uh there's it's a, it's a, like the decision but rather than kind of like oh i want that but i can't have it it's more i want that and i want that like you feel yeah. like you won both ways around <laughs> yeah there are so many times when i think this, this speaks to the strength of the the design that um one of the things on the left hand route will be just a free artifact which is huge that's like yeah. a massive yeah. thing but you don't know what it is and on the right there's like a spell shop and then two things i don't need and spell shops aren't usually one of my top priorities, but I just have a spell in my deck that it's good now, but with the right upgrades, it could completely change my life. It could be just incredible because <laughs> you can do stuff like I, I had um, a card that kills any non-boss unit for, I think, zero energy. But when you use it, it's gone from your deck forever. So you get to use it one time in your run. And then I got an upgrade that was uh things that are normally removed permanently instead are only consumed which means they're gone for this battle but you get them back at the end of the uh, when you start your next fight and then i upgraded that card so that it it removes consume but it costs one more energy uh and so now i can use that as many times as i like but now it costs energy to use and then i added another upgrade to it which was also make it cost one less energy (laughs) so now (laughs) oh and a third time because um i also made it holdover which means when you play it it will be on top of your draw pile next turn and so you'll always draw it again so now every turn for free i can kill anything except the boss (laughs) (laughs) you just yeah yeah it's beautiful and then obviously the, the like counterpoint to that, the reason it le- it's able to let you do all this stuff is that these, the jump in difficulty of each successive fight is massive. You know, it's not like Slay the Spire where like, okay, there's a normal one, normal one, normal one, slightly harder one, normal one, normal one. And then the next chapter, the normal ones get a bit harder. Um, it's like each fight is like, oh my God, like the last boss had 400 health. This guy has 800 health. Mm. Um, and so the way you fail is not because... Um, oh, I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I made some terrible decision to tank my whole thing. Even if you don't make any mistakes, if you failed to make something insane happen, <laughs> you're going to die. It's going to be like, by it might not be this next fight, but the fight after, if you don't have some insane combo going, uh, you're just not going to be able to keep up. I think that I think that's why I'm nervous of kind of it falling out of love with it. I think it, and it's because it needs the extraordinary all the time. Yeah. I think, you know, because I, the 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 bosses 
they are stern challenges and and often i don't know quite what i did wrong the, yeah, you know I, like, I barely make a, a you know i i mint all of the angels that come before the boss <laughs> and everything's fine and then the boss comes and i can't even make an impact on it and i just so what went wrong i don't really know what what the decision or what the strategic um mistake i made was yeah, I've had a few runs like that. I've had I had one with the, the demon guys where I thought I was doing really well. I just got some really like big, tough demons that also did loads of damage. Then I was able to apply multi-strike to them and I just thought, great, I've done it. And then I, I just fell behind. I just couldn't keep up with the, the scaling of the, everything else. I sort of didn't have, I think I just probably just peaked early. I just, I made my things as good as they were going to get. I didn't have a, a viable way of making them even better. They had all their upgrade slots filled and I just kind of fell behind and I ended that run feeling a bit weird. Like, oh, I thought I, you know, I did the good thing. But I guess it just wasn't good enough. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I've had runs where I had one run where just the boss that life steals, I, he completely obliterated me. And I've been doing really well until oh, then. Yeah. And I just, I, I was left feeling like, how did I ever beat that guy? <laughs> like, he does a lot of damage. And all the damage he does, he gets to get that back as health. Like, what? how do you kill that? <laughs> and I guess just the other times I just had more. I just had like more spikes or more damage or... Um, Something like that. There's a yeah. there's a boss that has stealth, and the stealth means if you have eight oh, yeah. stealth, that means that uh, for eight rounds of combat, you are not a target. No one can attack you, um, and that's sometimes a, a huge pain in the ass as well. It's if you go for anything, that's the one that kills you if you go for glass cannons because if you have weak units uh, that can't take a lot of rounds of combat, it doesn't matter how much damage they're doing. They could be doing five thousand damage every turn. They can't target the guy, so they've got to survive eight turns before they even get a hit in. Um, and that sh that destroyed me once. Uh, someone in our Discord um, <laughs> pointed out that if your units have stealth, it creates a hilarious standoff with that boss. <laughs> like with the first, if you have like four stealth and he has eight stealth. The first four turns of that combat are just the both of them just standing there, not looking at each other because they can't see each other. <laughs> but you both know something's there because otherwise you'd be moving on to the next room. <laughs> <laughs> i think that the other side of that is that on the positive side i've had so many more runs that turned around like i've had than slay the spire you know slay the spire when the run starts going bad it's going to stay bad it's not really going to change dramatically whereas this because those reward screens have so much on them you, you always have a chance to there's always a chance that you might get the right things that just turn a mediocre deck into an amazing one yeah, yeah. It, it always does feel like you're on the cusp of, of of a breakthrough or something that you hadn't foreseen that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good game. It really is. I realized, as you were saying that bit earlier about um, Slay the Spire being the strict parents, mm -hmm. um, I am my own kid's cool uncle. <laughs> <laughs> I've just given him so much chocolate now that he turns <laughs> it down when when I try. Um, You're the monster for parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, there is a game, though. There is a game called Over Dungeon. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. that does sound familiar. I described it. I wrote about it a, a couple of months back, and I described it as the Peggle of Slay, Slay the Spire Likes. <laughs> and it's just... It, it has no discernible elegance to it, but it is just concerned with bombast and making you feel good at all times. And what it is, <laughs> just very briefly, it's a it's a deck building CCG combined with 
a terror defense game and it takes place in real time. So your cards are on cooldowns, but otherwise you can play them at any time. And the cards create units on a board, which then start a steady march towards your bo- the whatever boss you're fighting against. And your opponent boss is likewise dropping units on the board, which are marching down towards you. Uh, and it's the game where within about 15 minutes the entire screen will just be covered in units <laughs> and it's 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 got kind of like the characters classes that you can choose between are this kind of terrible booby animating art but otherwise all the units are very silly so you can just have like you can build a deck based around barnyard animals and just like <laughs> swarm your opponents with literally having 200 chicks on screen at once and like 80 alpacas <laughs> and they'll just like march towards the opponent and beat them to, beat them to death or um cannons you can put lots of cannon turrets that will just like spew out like six bullets a second sort of rate and then you can have 30 of them and they will just fill the entire screen with bullets and it's like I think I like completed a run the first time I ever played it. I don't think I've ever actually lost a run. Uh, and I played <laughs> it for a few hours and then kind of lost interest because it was just, um, it wasn't really requiring much of my brain. But it is a very satisfying game to just boot up if you just want an endorphin hit for half an hour, basically. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, excess. Um, excess is good. Uh, I also played Alex. Oh, yeah. Hi, hello. Do you remember that there's a new Valve game? <laughs> new oh, Valve right. game, no less. That one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I got a uh, Oculus Quest because... Um, so I, which is the Quest? Big, it's the wireless one. It's the one where the actual right. VR thing is inside the headset. Um, yeah. And uh, But the reason I... One reason that I finally sort of... Uh, caved and got one is that you can also plug it into your computer to and then it's just a vr headset like the whatever the current oculus normal one is the rift or whatever um and so i thought great because i a this solves my main problem with vr which is uh, i want it to be wireless um and the wire is a huge pain uh, and also i don't want to install lighthouses in my apartment because i you know i can't drill holes in the wall and then you've got to have these weird poles that go floor to ceiling and it's uh it's a bit of a pain um and uh also i want to play alex and uh i thought best of both worlds um and i got one and then i was googling like what cable do i need to buy to to make this work to plug it in and i found the details on that but also i learned that you don't necessarily need a cable even to play desktop stuff on it because there's a thing called uh virtual desktop which just lets you kind of wirelessly dial into your your pc and incredibly that it depends on your Wi-Fi setup at home and, and stuff, and there's mixed reports on whether the cable is better or the the wireless thing is better. But for me, at least, that just works. Like I just I played Alex wirelessly on the Oculus Quest, um, just uh, with my it was running on my gaming PC, but I didn't have to actually plug it in, um, and it was almost perfect. There was a, like every just rarely there'd be like a you know dropped frame or two or um, a slight moment of uh judderiness on the tracking i actually don't know whether that's the connection's fault I, i'm not sure that it is because i um there was one time when i was having a lot of judderiness and so i thought okay screw this i, I will sit down and i'll plug it in and i'll do it seated because i don't really have a lot of space around my gaming pc 
Um, and actually that didn't solve the judging race at all. So doing it via the cable thing didn't fix that one problem I had. Um, and so I just unplugged it and went back to wireless. And also in that brief period, I was like, oh my God, I forgot how much I hate this wire. <laughs> like, <laughs> the very first thing I did was like spin around on my office chair like three times to get myself completely entangled. <laughs> like, wait, this sucks. I hate this. <laughs> but yeah, playing it wireless is so cool. I, I would gladly put up with, um, uh, you know, occasional judderiness, even if it was to do with the wireless connection, which I don't think it was in my case, um, uh, for that that benefit of just being able to just oh i just have some space in my lounge i can just do this here i don't need to set anything up i don't need to plug anything in um and it it's actually the, probably the most immersed i've been in vr because i kind of i didn't have to worry too much about i still had to worry about where i am in my play space obviously um but i didn't have to worry about which direction i'm facing and that was uh, that takes a lot off your plate um and yeah that game was really good <laughs> uh, <laughs> Have it's you it's a weird it? experience for me. I, yeah, I have. Um, I can't really judge it, and so I won't try to because I it, I played it, you know, over the course of like three-ish years, I think, uh, at various stages of development. I, it's it's hard now to cast our minds back to a time before this game was announced and before we anyone knew Valve were working on anything Half-Life related. Um, and I visited them, and uh, I wanted to see. Uh, or my, my friend Robin said, "What?" what uh, do you want to see what I'm working on? And I said, yeah, sure. And had me a VR headset and said, okay, I think the only thing you need to know is you're Alex. <laughs> and for like a couple of seconds, I, it was, that was so uh, outside of my field of expectations that I didn't hear it as A-L-Y-X or just like A-L-E-X. Okay, I'm a guy called Alex, whatever. <laughs> I'm not sure why I need to know my name. And I was like, oh my God, wait a second. <laughs> put on the headset. And that's got to be like the shortest time from knowing of the existence of a Half-Life game to playing the Half-Life game. <laughs> but in all what? that time, you couldn't talk to anyone else about it. Yeah, that was, I knew, so I kind of, as I was experiencing it the first time and then sort of decompressing afterwards, I was aware of several things simultaneously. One, I've never experienced a Valve game like this. I've never seen a Valve game in an incomplete state uh, or certainly not like a Half-Life game, uh, you know, where it's not visually ready yet. Um, and that's that's inherently going to be weird. And then uh, B, this is going to ruin it for me. <laughs> like I, I will never get to have the, the experience that the end user will have where they get to experience this whole yeah. thing as this one glorious polished hole. Um, uh, and then also see that, uh, that I can't tell anyone about it and that's going to be frustrating, but also <laughs> D that it's, that it's totally worth it because <laughs> it was pretty awesome to, um, uh, yeah, I, I think I had all of the fun I would have had when it finally came out, but just spread out. So in, in different doses, you know, all, all the things, there were a bunch of things you were talking about in it uh, last time, Graham, that I knew what you were talking about in a lot of those cases and was fondly remembering discovering those things for the first time. And now going through the finished version, I don't get that thrill. Like, so the actual kind of content, the concepts of each section were not, uh, you know, blowing me away and being like, whoa, I can't believe they did this. Uh, but the, the look of it was because it's gorgeous and it wasn't when I last played it. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but, but that's definitely the thing that comes together at the last minute is is how uh, the visual polish and yeah the, the particularly like the way you mentioned it being a lot more like zen uh, than anything in half-life 2 um, and that's very true and it's really cool just to see you know buildings taken over with weird alien stuff sometimes it feels like you're in an inside an aquarium you know with all these tendrils mm. and glowing mm. uh, tentacles and um, fleshy walls and coral like things uh, and that's it's a really cool like, visual spectacle in that way. Um, 
I definitely agreed with you that the, uh, I won't uh, spoil any specifics of anything, but um, the Jeff section was definitely my favorite uh, hmm. by a long way to the point that it actually almost spoiled the rest of it. Like that was, um, uh, the Jeff section worked so well that when I went back to just kind of shooting zombies and shooting combine, it was, it, I was a lot less satisfied with that because um, when the, when you just have one element to worry about, just one thing uh, and all of the, everything's focused around that and all the puzzles are designed around it and all the, um, everything that's going on is all about that one thing. It's so much more kind of clear and focused and the emotion, yeah. um, the, all the emotions you're feeling are kind of enhanced and exaggerated um, uh, because, you know, it's not about like, oh, there are six zombies and two of them got a bit close to me and one of them poured at me a bit and I lost a little bit of health. It is life or death. It is either this thing absolutely <laughs> destroys me or I'm absolutely fine. And you're always on that knife edge. And I think actually one great thing about that, that sequence is that it's, um, it's terrifying, really, really scary, um, but it's actually not that hard. Like once you, un once you mm. realize what you need to do, the challenge of it is massively exaggerated by the the feeling of being up against the horrible thing. Um, and in a horror scenario, you are scared and that is uh, making it feel much harder than it really is. When if, if everything was reduced down to like abstract blocks or something, you'd be thinking, wow, this is easy. You just go over here and you do this and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Did yeah. you did you find it scary in general? Just inter yes. interest because it's something. That, <laughs> yes, right, I did. <laughs> it's I, yeah. I've, I've heard some people say like um, uh, that you know the horror. Although there's horror elements, it's not that bad because you've got, it's got this layer of comedy and stuff, and that's true to an extent. But I definitely have friends where I'd say, "Don't play this. Just don't play this. <laughs> You're going to be <laughs> fucking. It's going to destroy you emotionally." Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it was yeah. It's definitely. Um, uh, it's scary, and then it it's when it's like zombies shuffling towards you from ten feet away, and they're getting closer, and there's there's a horror element to that, and maybe it's dark, and that's spooky, and um, you're very on edge, and it's making you uh, fumble a bit and stuff. That's that's one level of fear, but then there's other stuff where it's like, hey, you know that thing you're most afraid of? Would you like to walk right up to it? <laughs> Would you like to be like forcibly there? You mentioned this before, Graham, and I, I, as I was playing, I was realizing all these moments that you were talking about when you said the times when you were like, oh, fuck you, Valve. <laughs> like when, when you realize what it's asking you to do, you're like, oh, fuck off. Come on. <laughs> it, it plays with you really well on that, on that axis. I feel like I have a partial version of the experience you had of playing it and then not being able to talk about it because I've played it, but no other motherfucker has. Cause it's <laughs> <a movie. laughs> and so I'm just constantly wishing I could talk about it more. And so it's been nice to have you play it and then be able to have conversations on discord about plot stuff. Cause like, yeah, yeah there's so much of it that feels like spoilers. Cause like, I really love the Jeff section and then it ends with you going to a new area that turns out okay, but when I found out where we were going, oh, I just fucking say it, it's antline tunnels. You're going in the <laughs> antline tunnels, um, which you spend a lot of time in in the Half-Life 2 episodes. I can't remember if it's episode one or episode two. I think it's episode two just, that features them a lot. They're just underground caves, and you've just had this like really special experience with Jeff, and then you're <laughs> like, oh, great, now I get to go underground into this game's version of sewers. <laughs> <laughs> sewers at least have like 
water in them. The actual cave section is very brief, and antlions are one of the best enemies in the game to fight. So, like that whole section turns out great. I really loved all that stuff, but yeah, it was a, a come down. Yeah, I think um, I wish that there was more. Uh, well, okay, so I agree with you basically that the fighting the combine is the least fun thing. Um, and in, in general, anytime an enemy doesn't have a weak spot, I'm not really enjoying fighting it. It needs to have, yeah. if I'm supposed to kill it, I need to be able to do it in like one or two really decisive shots if I get it right. And I won't because I'm a bad shot. <laughs> but um, uh, there, is, there are just a bunch of enemies that just don't have any weak spots. Like, I mean, the combine that you do more damage if you shoot them in the head, but it's still like eight shots or something. Um, yeah. And so it doesn't feel like hitting a weak spot. It feels like I'm just pumping bullets into this thing until it runs out of health and it's, uh, it doesn't feel good. Um, there was uh, the one thing I particularly, one reason I particularly like a weak spot kind of um, uh, combat system is that uh, A, it's really decisive when you get it right. And B, uh, one of the cool things about VR is you get better so fast. Like if I'm playing a shooter and I'm, there's an annoying flying enemy that I'm struggling to hit, I will be struggling to hit that 12 hours later <laughs> still like hmm. I, don't, I won't really get any better because my fps skills are just where they are they're just um i don't i'm not going to get manually more accurate uh, in the, over the course of an fps but in vr almost everything you're being asked to do is kind of a little bit either it's new to you because you're not because you're new to vr or this game requires you to use it in a slightly different way and it's using more of your body and hmm. your body is really good at learning it's really good at learning new physical skills it's not so good at, at at refining your mouse movement uh, even more after you know twenty five years of using mice, um, <laughs> and so I just I started really really bad at shooting weak spots and then I ended up way way better. I remember there's there's a particular kind of head crab that has a weak spot on its underbelly and so you only get a brief window of time to shoot it in, um, and like a lot of you know typical Valve fashion, you get a chance to uh, fight those in a controlled environment where they're no danger to you. They're behind a fence and it literally took me more than an entire clip to hit this weak spot. You only got to shoot it once. And I, just, I have all the time in the world. I can, I can afford to only shoot when it's showing its weak spot to me. And I'm sure I've got the shot. And I would still get through an entire clip before I actually hit it. <laughs> and then towards <laughs> the end of the game, those things were like, you know, as they're, as they're tumbling over, I'd just, there'd be a couple of frames where their weak spot was exposed. And I was just nailing those shots with no problem because you just get there so <laughs> fast. <laughs> So, like, what do you want? Like, having played it now, do you want Valve to make another VR Half Life game, or would you still rather they made a desktop Half Life game? I definitely rather they made a desktop one, because um, I think ultimately there's loads of cool stuff in this, but um, I find when it's when I'm being pushed in the execution uh, side of things, when it's hard to execute the thing I'm trying to do. I just stop enjoying it. I'm just like, this is annoying. I'm just trying to messing around with teleporting and failing to do that well enough is just irritating. It's just I'm I'm fighting the interface here. Whereas in a in an FPS where it's a format that's, you know, had decades of, of iteration and um it's it's not that it doesn't have any artificialities or abstractions or art or difficulty of control. It's just that we're used to it and we accept it now. When it's if I'm, you know, bunny hopping across an arena and trying to headshot folks and I miss and I, I get shot before I reach the crates, I'm always like, damn, I could have done better there. I, let me have another go. In VR, if I, I did, tried to teleport, but I didn't teleport far enough or I, I wasn't able to look away 
to where I'm teleporting because I'm trying to aim at someone else and therefore I don't go where I mean to. I'm just annoyed. It just doesn't feel good. So anything that's going to be actually skill-based, that's actually going to be difficult, I want it to be a, a screen-based game. Hmm. How about you, Graham? I think, I mean, I, I think I'd be happy with either, but I'd probably lean more towards another VR game. Huh. Um, hmm. Like, I, I agree with what Tom just said, so I would like it to be easier. Um, <laughs> but for me, I think part of the appeal of Half-Life is that it was incredibly immersive to play Half-Life 1 and Half-Life 2, and that was in part because it, they were a technological leap forward each time. And I do wonder if... A, just like a desktop version of it that was another first-person shooter, I don't know what it could do or show me that wouldn't that I wouldn't just breeze past. It would just wouldn't feel like even if it was really good, that just wouldn't feel like oh yeah, that was a that was another that was a good game, and then I'd forget <laughs> about it. Like unless it changed genres in some way, because like I feel like the bar for that kind of immersion has raised to the point where you would have to have you know an open world and dialogue trees and those sorts of stuff like these tends to be the thing that make me feel embedded in a place. Mm. And VR was like being in City 17, I felt embedded in that place, probably in a way that was commensurate with the way I did when I first played Half-Life 2. Um, and so, yeah, I would be well up for them doing more VR stuff. And I think they'll continue to get better at some of the things that I found frustrating this time around, or the tech will continue to get better. Isn't there a, a sort of element that like the wow factor of VR you've had that now with Alex. And so the next one, the next VR game would have the same problem as the next screen-based game, which is that you kind of had the... It's the thing of, I just, I find that the wow factor of VR isn't purely technological. It is also about the environmental design. And like, if you show me an incredible thing on my monitor, like the Citadel or a piece of tech, like sci-fi technology or something like that, uh, I'm like, that doesn't necessarily have the same impact on me that it would have done 20 years ago. Whereas if I see that stuff in VR and it's like different than what I've seen before, then I it's still, because I'm actually there. <laughs> like it, that's, that's being next to the big sci-fi edifice is impressive every time in my experience so far, like relatively limited, but there have been other VR first person experiences that have set me in beautiful environments and I've gone, wow, that's incredible. And I still did that again when I played Half-Life Alex. And so I would have faith in Valve's artists basically to craft an environment that would, that would do that for me in VR. But even if they created that same space in desktop, I don't know if it would. Hmm. I think, um, I it definitely it was cool to be inside these these wild weird alien places, um, but I also had a, a factor where like if there was some big thing exploding or crashing or something landing right next to me, I actually although it looked more real than it would do on a screen, the sense that this was fake scripted stuff just like movie set dressing kind of thing was even mm. more even stronger in VR because I was just I, I I do believe I'm in a space. But now I believe that space is faked. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> when I'm looking at a screen, I don't believe I'm there, but I believe the place is real. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. There is certainly like a kind of universal studios tour sort of thing where like they, you know, 
have a fake explosion building that collapses around you as you walk through a space, but you know you're in the safe safe zone sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I guess I also, I mean, what I want from a future Half-Life game is some new mechanic like the gravity gun that is, um, or not like the gravity gun, but that, that has that same effect of like, oh, wow, this totally mm. changes how I interact with the whole game. And it's more than just a weapon and it has puzzle applications and stuff. Um, and part of, uh, part of what's cool about the gravity gun, you know, for it to be a good combat tool and all that stuff, that all that kind of interacts with the difficulty side of things. That, you know, it's not that Half-Life 2 is a very difficult game or that I wanted a very difficult game, but when I am challenged to grab a circular saw blade and fire it at a fast zombie in time to cut it in half before it reaches me, that's the type of fun I do enjoy. And I don't want that in VR because I just uh, it's just going to be, <laughs> um, I'm going to be fighting the system in some way. It's really like, you know, I love the gravity gun and I love Portal, but I, I am tired of first-person games with a kind of puzzle gimmick. <laughs> like, I feel like there's so many of those now that um, have their unique thing, but I, I don't know. I think I just maybe played too many games <laughs> at this point. <laughs> probably is probably me. I probably am having too little faith in Valve that, you know... I, I don't believe that I've seen it all or anything like that. Yeah, I was actually really impressed watching that um, Arcane documentary. I know you guys talked about it uh, previously, but um, there's footage in there of their Half-Life episode that they were working on. And one of their mechanics is this kind of like nail gun thing that the nails are electrified. And as you like bolt them into the environments, they connect to each other and they can supply power to to devices and so there's uh, puzzles about creating kind of circuit within the level of linking this thing to that thing so that it powers it up. And uh, that actually really felt like a potential successor to the gravity gun in terms of I can totally see Valve making that weapon and that having both combat and puzzle applications and um, stuff along those lines is really cool. Hmm. Shall we do questions from questions? Hey, let's do that. Uh, we've got a question from TJ Howes. Um, he says, he writes a longer email uh, that I'm going to go into, but he's essentially talking about how humans are geared for survival and we have the urge to, to survive um, and ties that into some of the philosophies behind the witnesses' audio recordings, but fails to see them in, reflected in the puzzles. Um, but he does love it. Um, but he does love the way that the audio tapes and gameplay are linked together in Receiver 2. Um, but he did have an issue with the threat tapes in Receiver 2. I played a little bit of Receiver 2, but I, I don't really know what the threat tapes are, um, which is as well because he found some of the content in them upsetting, um, but he was able to disable them. That game allowed him to disable it. And so he asks... What optional configuration setting do you most appreciate in a game? We were just talking about Half-Life Alex, and I feel like VR games are unusually good at exposing configuration options to the player, presumably as a side effect of different people requiring different things in order to feel comfortable and not throw up. Mm. Um, but games like Beat Saber, for example, give you a lot of options to turn off 
a lot of the failure states and that sort of stuff or a lot of the different types of obstacles you face like like one of the types of obstacle you face in beat saber is just like a a giant block that zooms towards you and you have to duck or step aside in order to stop your head from being in it you can just turn those off yeah (laughs) yeah so i just turn them off there's uh if you miss a certain number of blocks under normal circumstances you will fail the song and the song will stop but i just turn that off as well and then it gives you the option to you can play in practice mode, in which case you can play at slower speeds. And so if you're struggling with a section, you can play it at 25% speed, get it down, and then gradually step up the speed until you get better huh. at it. And that's actually like a fantastic practice mode for that game. Like It's still satisfying to play at slower speeds, but you are just you just need to internalize the muscle memory to do it. And there's another How game... Does... Sorry, Sorry uh, just on that Beat Saber thing. Uh, are you actually listening to the song at 25% of its normal speed? yes i should know that given how much i've done it but super weird (laughs) um i guess i don't normally drop it down as low as 25 percent um i normally drop it down to like usually if you drop it down to like 70 or 80 percent yeah that's still slow enough that you can then do it quite easily and it does sound slower obviously the song but it doesn't sound it's not right. <laughs> it's not completely distorted to the point where um, it feels like you're in one of the layers of Inception or anything like that. I, um, I really hope that a listener takes that recording and speeds it up to find out what, what you were singing. <laughs> um, Some sort of satanic message. But there's, a, there's, another, there's another game, um, Pistol Whip, which uh, is likewise kind of a rhythm game like Beat Saber, but um, you're shooting people <laughs> rather than slicing blocks. You're shooting people to the time of the music. And that has a bunch of modifiers, essentially, that you can apply. Because by, def- by default, the game has really powerful auto-aim on, yeah. um, which you can turn off, but don't turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried. I was so sure. Like I was playing it, and I, was, I really like it, um, and you feel super cool doing it. And you, you, It's one of the few games where I'm actually kind of dancing to the music as well as playing yeah. the game, because I can do both. Um, and you get a little like this little red indicator sometimes when you shoot someone. And I thought that was telling me, oh, you would have hit this guy anyway, like even without the auto aim, you would have hang on. <laughs> I, I tried turning the auto aim off. I'm like, nope, I don't think that's what that indicator means. <laughs> I don't think I've ever hit anybody. <laughs> um, but there's a bunch of other modifiers in there as well. Like there's one, by default, you just hold a single weapon, but you can use a modifier to have akimbo pistols, which in my mind, just instantly makes the game twice as good. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yes. You're dancing around, gun in each hand, and because of the auto-aim, you can just kind of throw away shots. Like, you're not really yeah. aiming, just vague direction, flick at the wrist stuff. Um, it is interesting. It's really, really I, cool. I did that too, because when I was playing it at first, I was just I was just confused. Like, I'm shooting all these people with my right hand. What is my left hand supposed to be doing? Like, <laughs> I haven't played a VR game that doesn't use my left hand for another gun or something. Um <laughs> And then I did turn it on, and it is cool, and I probably it will keep playing that way. But it, it, you definitely feel that it's not designed for that. In that, mm. it doesn't do that. I think I played like Space Pirate Trainer before that, and when you're using the, the twin pistols, there's challenge waves that are designed for that, and they do things like have two different streams of enemies coming on your left and your right, so that what you're doing with your left and right hand kind of syncs up. And yeah, you definitely feel the absence of that. Yeah, that's true. Thank you very much, Travis, for that question. Uh, uh, oh, God, I did, one, I, did I? I um, oh, sorry. Go. 
uh, not VR related. It, I, if I possibly can, I will turn the fog of war off in RTS games, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I know that RTS hardcore people will cringe uh, at that because I am taking away a huge part of the strategy of the game. But I don't like it. I don't like not knowing what they're what the enemy's doing. Honestly, even with it off, I'm not spending enough of my time looking at their base to actually know what they're up to. <laughs> like I'm I'm dumb enough and lazy enough that I will still not really know what they're doing. <laughs> but it just uh, dramatically changes the aesthetic of the game. Like everything looks clear and open and kind of bright, and I've got this feeling of of clarity. Um, <laughs> and when an attack is incoming. Like, I'm just not going to devote the brain resources to scouting. Like, Supreme Commander is the RTS I play most, and you can send off scout planes, and there's a whole, you know, tech tree kind of aspect uh, to that that you're supposed to care about. But I'm just not going to do it. I just won't get around to it. I'll just <laughs> focus on turtling, and I'll just play the same game every time, and it won't matter what they're doing because I'm not going to spend the energy to find out. Whereas if I turn <laughs> Fog of War off, there's at least a chance I will bother to click over to their base and see like, oh shit, they've got an experimental coming. I should probably do something about that. And that way, there's actually more strategy in it for me that way because there's a chance I might respond to something they're doing at some point. <laughs> Whereas with Fog of War on, I'm never going to react to anything they're up to because I just won't find out. <laughs> I, I, I think that I should value um, sort of configuration options better in this case because anything like that, I... I, I find it very hard to um, accept in my mind that, that I might not be having fun with the game as it is, like that I you know <laughs> that I might have more fun if I did switch off the fog of war or you know I, I insist on playing fire emblem games with um, with permadeath on and and I've generally I stop playing them because I keep losing my characters, meaning that I have to replay <laughs> the level because I can't kill any of them because that would be just awful and therefore i just don't really enjoy the game like but there's something in me that that wants to believe that there's like an optimal way that this game is meant to be played and that whatever it's shipped with is that way and i don't i wish i could accept i could just go into the menu and just flick it off put it on the easiest easiest skill setting and then i might finish the game and probably have more fun too (laughs) this is a failing with me (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's common though there's a lot of people who, who feel that way who you know even when the difficulty option exists that would that they believe would fix the game for them they won't choose it out of you know pride yeah. or some other it's like it's some, with me it's like it's something to do with authorial kind of intent like oh there was like the designers intended a certain way which i yeah. like rationally i know just sort of is ridiculous but yeah i have a version of this with vr headsets actually where there's lots of little knobs on them that you can twiddle with to like change the distance of the lenses from your eyes, the separation between the two lenses, like how far apart they are, the tightness of the straps. And I, I've trained myself out of it now, but for months when I first had a VR headset, I was just constantly being like, well, it would, what, it would it be slightly sharper if I just moved it like this? Or would it be <laughs> yeah. nicer if I moved it like that? Would it look better if like this? And I would just be like constantly moving everything <laughs> back and forward at all times. Um, yeah, and just anxious that it, it wasn't the best experience that I, yeah. that I was having. Yeah, I recognize that. Ah, oh, final question. We've only have two this week. We've we've, uh, we've chanted on for a while now. Um, this comes from Nelson. Uh, he writes, uh, "Dear, you search the great yund, you find nothing. I've been known to play the consistently six point five out of ten MMO RPG RuneScape. 
like many of its current players, on and off since early childhood. As it is for many others, I find the game isn't the same as it used to be, and the real change was the me that changed along the way. <laughs> Question mark in brackets. Um, I used to be so amazingly stupendously inept at understanding any of the game systems when I was young that it held a sense of absolutely limitless mystery. I was enchanted as I stumbled across these quests that I had no idea how to solve and tried to find uh, valuable items in random crates. Now, no matter what I do, I can't recreate, recreate the enjoyment I got from being so cosmically out of the loop. Have you ever been robbed of an enjoyable gaming experience by getting better at a particular game? Pods to keep you up, be loving it, Nelson. Uh, I think every multiplayer first-person shooter has. <laughs> well, any that I've played long enough to get actually good at, I eventually come to despise. Because <laughs> when I first start playing a multiplayer first-person shooter, I have no expectations of my own ability. And so if I'm just dying after 30 seconds, that's absolutely fine. Um, but if I keep playing it for months and if I actually start getting good at it, if I have even like two or three good games, I now know I am capable of playing well and therefore all other experiences are measured against those good rounds I had. And I had this problem with Valorant, actually. Um, the Riot first person shooter I talked about a little bit on the pod before. The first time I ever played valorant the first time i clicked my mouse to fire a gun i headshot a guy and he died (laughs) (laughs) the the second time i pressed (laughs) press left click i headshot a guy and he died (laughs) and i went on in that first very first round i played to get like 35 kills I, i planted the bomb a bunch of times i was top of the leaderboard by miles it was an amazing game <laughs> and then every experience after that was worse <laughs> was just and so like eventually i stopped playing it um yeah i, I feel like i would be happier if i just never got good at anything <laughs> i think yeah i have the same thing but i without getting better <laughs> like, i just <laughs> I never do get any better at the game. I just, my expectations for how good I should be increasing, increase, increase <laughs> yeah. until I'm falling so far short of them that I'm just really annoyed. Yeah, that's how I, I think that, that like there are, I'm, you know, it feels often that there are, there's on that, on your first go in a game like that Valorant or actually with Monster Train as well. Um, th- I won my first game of, of, of Monster Train and um, it actually sets you on sort of the lowest skill level and it kind of, you can increase it over time, you know, as you start winning. Um, but um, in winning that, I wondered whether it had, like it gave me an easy run. Like, you know, games do that, you know, they they, they give you an easy go on the first go. Like, I don't know, there probably are example of multiplayer games where they tweak your view, your, your aim, so that you're just a little bit better on that first ever game. <laughs> and then the reality of your skills actually is modeled more closely. Yeah, it's also, it's very possible just to get really lucky early on. I think I won my first ever Slay the Spire run, which is winning in Slay the Spire, <laughs> I think is, is less common than in Monster Train on the basic difficulty. Um, Good Lord. And yeah, that gave me a skewed impression of expectations for that. <laughs> Great. So, any other? I, do you have a- yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I just remember something I meant to say about Alex while we're on that subject and I forgot, which is that I know that uh, there'll be a bunch of people who um, 
who are eventually going to get VR and obviously uh, are going to play it then and and uh, want to avoid anything to do with it until then. And also probably a bunch of people who are just never going to get VR. It's just not going to happen for them. Either it's, you know, makes them sick or they're just never going to be able to have the space or, or afford it. Um, and if you want to watch Half-Life Alex all the way through, there is a really good playthrough that's only, it's five hours long, which is much, much less time than it took me. Um, but it's kind of a... Um, a performance of it like somebody has gone through it with there's a special option that valve give you that's um uh really only for making videos which is a motion smoothing thing where hmm. um it yeah smooths out all of the head bobbing and uh, all of the view changing stuff you're doing he he does teleport uh but not very much most of his movement is just like walking around a, a real place um and he kind of performs certain moments you know you'll see him kind of put his finger to his lips when alex is saying shush and um uh you know gesture to people in, in a very convincing way and he does a lot of creative fun stuff like someone throws a grenade at him and he opens a nearby drawer puts the grenade in the drawer and closes it <laughs> and that contains the blast uh, so it's a really entertaining way to watch it and you can just watch the whole thing start to finish and you'll you know get the the plot payload that um uh, you've probably heard people uh, talking about so if you're sure you're never going to play it for real then uh i think that's a that's a good way of just getting at the the actual kind of content um, I'll find the link for that so we can have it in show notes. Cool. Great. Okay. So thanks very much, you two. It was lovely to talk to you. As yeah, usual. You lovely to be yeah. here. And thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll actually say that properly at the end. I just totally <laughs> blew it. Um, <laughs> let's, 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 let's get ourselves ready to say that um, by uh, ending the, with the traditional, you can hang out with us in our community on our Discord channel. If you have a question for a future episode, send it to us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com or you can tweet us at creightoncrowbar. You can also listen to the pod on uh, YouTube where we upload every pod and you'll also find some other content, what we've done make. The Creighton Crowbar is kindly uh, funded by our Patreon backers. If you'd like to know about more about supporting your podcast and its spin-offs, go visit patreon.com slash Creighton Crowbar. You can also join our Discord community, our lovely Discord community. Um, you can find a link to join it on our website at creightoncrowbar.com. I think that's it, isn't it? Uh, I've been Alex Wiltshire uh, and Tom. I have been Tom Francis. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and Alec and and Graham, who have you been? Uh, I've also been Tom Francis. <laughs> oh, that was confusing. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Right, <laughs> 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 <laughs>